It is so good to be back. Zeke, you don't have to leave. Before I start with this morning's message, just ignore me for a minute. CJ, six pages. That's how how many I've got. (laughs) That way you can actually listen instead of you can just relax. If you weren't here last week for CJ's comments, they are recorded. All right. Since I've gone from you over the month of July, here in the book of Acts, a lot has happened. You've seen a great persecution break out against the church in Jerusalem, where the church was centered. And as a result, um, the Christians there are scattered. They run for their lives. And you've watched that everywhere they go... They take the gospel with them. The gospel, the joyful news of, ev- of an event that changes history. That, that's what the word means. It, it comes from a Greek word that means joyful news, but a particular type of news. History-changing news. And what is the gospel? What is this history-changing news that they carry around with them? It is the life and crucifixion, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, that's the news that changes history. And they take that news, that the story of Jesus, of his life, they take it with them everywhere they go, and and they say, look, this is an event. And the event of Jesus' life, in that event, the one and only creator of All things, the one and only God, this God, through Jesus, who is this God, in the flesh, this God is healing the world. He's rescuing the world. And they lived in a world like ours that was filled with violence that was filled with violence of authorities against those without power and those people retaliating back with their own violence. They lived in a world filled with injustice. They lived in a world where people were stricken down with illnesses and some recovered and some didn't. They lived in that kind of world and here these Christians went everywhere saying, look, there is some deep magic in the life of Jesus, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension. There is a deep magic in that that is healing the world. This is the way God is healing the world. That the creator of the world hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't turned his back on us. He knows. He knows that we're broken. He knows that we're suffering, that we are hurt and that we hurt others. He knows all of this. And Jesus is the solution. Not Jesus as a doctrine or Jesus as a path, but his life, his event, the events of his life, his life broke something in the universe. It broke evil. It broke death. And in somehow, in this C.S. Lewis phrase, this deep magic way, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, it, it's done something that has ushered in what the Bible calls God's kingdom, the healing of the world. 
creation being made new. In our passage this morning, Acts chapter 13, we pick up in the story Christianity has spread as far north as the city of Antioch, the capital of Syria, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And by this point in Acts, the churches that are all over the city of Antioch, together they constitute what is quickly becoming the second major center of Christianity. Christianity is shifting north. The center of Christianity is beginning to shift away from Jerusalem. If you have a Bible, find Acts chapter 13. If you need to use a table of contents, that's fine. Mike read this great passage with drama um, earlier. He has this deep sense of this forward-moving drama. Acts chapter 13, it begins with a four-dimensional description of the church in Antioch, these churches throughout the city. First, we're told that in these churches in the city of Antioch, there is a significant concentration of remarkable leaders. That's verse 1. And then in verse 2, we get a fascinating description of their spirituality. The way that they engage in the life of God and draw down on God's love and power and forgiveness into their own life. And their spirituality, the rhythm, the way they engage with God is through the regular habit of corporate worship surrounded by prayer and fasting. That's their spirituality. That's how they do. Their relationship with God. And third, at the end of verse 2, we see that God is leading the church in Antioch to send its very best leaders away. And fourth, in verse 3, we see that when God does that, when he leads the church in Antioch to give up their best leaders, in order so that they can go away from Antioch and plant other churches. As God leads them to do that, we see in verse 3 that they joyfully follow God's will. They obey him. They commission Paul and Barnabas to head out to carry the gospel into other cities where they will plant churches. Then in verses 4 to 6, we see that Saul, or Paul, as he quickly becomes known, that he and Barnabas, they leave Antioch, they head to Antioch's port, which is Seleucia, and they sail for the island of Cyprus. Now this is Barnabas' home. This is where Barnabas is from. That makes sense to me. All right, go out and plant churches. Go out with this gospel. Barnabas says, we got to go tell my family. we got to go tell all these people that I grew up with. we got to go to this place that I love. We've got to go to Cyprus. So there they go. They head off. They land on the eastern side. It's kind of an island like this. Paul and Carol, were you just there? Did you go to Cyprus? No, but you did some of this. You were in that area, maybe? All right. They land on the eastern side. They get on the main road, and they travel through the whole island, stopping at the cities along the way, telling the gospel. What's the gospel? It's news about the life of Jesus, that they then say, this changes everything. Now, they eventually get to this capital of Cyprus. 
And as they are there, they have the amazing experience of leading the governor, the Roman governor, of the entire island to the faith, to Christianity. He converts. He becomes a Christian. This is, this is a remarkable experience. I mean, can you imagine Barnabas's joy that his entire island, people are learning about the great work of God and they're embracing it in their lives, even a Roman governor. But it's not all smooth sailing. In fact, a pattern we've seen developing since chapter 4 plays out on the island of Cyprus. There is no advance for the kingdom of God without opposition. And we see this in verses 6 through 12. This weird conflict with this magician. We'll talk more about that in weeks to come. But what I want to show you is just this idea of what's happening, to feel it in your bones. The kingdom of God is moving forward, but it's not moving forward in a smooth sailing kind of way. It's both victories, but it's also opposition and suffering. The renewing work of God in this world is like that. It's like that in this room right now. Barbara and Basil have just discovered that Basil has cancer. There are other people in this room right now who are coming off a week of enormous victories. This is the way the kingdom has always been, that churches like us are filled with all of these at the same time, these victories, these joys, and these deep sufferings. This is what the Bible says is going on in our world, that the kingdom of God, it's what we Christians pray for and labor for and long for. It's what God is doing. He's making all things new. And our church, we're a Christian church. We're a part of that. And as we participate in the kingdom of God, we should expect both. We should expect tremendous, powerful victories. And we shouldn't recognize that the pattern from the beginning has been that this is with, not without suffering, not without opposition. Think about the church in Antioch. They lost Paul. They lost Barnabas, who, who had a character trait that earned him the name encourager. Can you imagine their pain, their suffering, their loss? I think you can. We know what it's like at Church of the Incarnation to hold people closely but loosely and to see them go. In the fall of 2014, as a church, we were worshiping and praying And fasting. And we sense the Spirit of God saying to us to lay our hands on on a whole group of people in our church, the largest small group in our church, a group of people that had been with us since the second month we existed, and and to commission them to plant a church in Elkton. We know what this is like. And we sent out 30 or so people, and we miss them. 
I miss them. I miss them less than you because I still go to their Pentecost parties. No, we miss them and they miss us. Almost every time I meet with them, some of them come up to me and talk about how deeply they miss us. And we must be willing to do this again and again and again and again. We must regularly fast and pray and adore King Jesus and wait on him and let his spirit lead us. And when we do that, we must be open to whatever he wants to do. And as we do that, again and again and again, he is going to lead us to say goodbye to each other. Because when you gather around the creator and you adore him and you look full in his wonderful face, a song I grew up singing, when I look full in his wonderful face, what is the next line? Does anybody know? And it's wrong. The things of this earth do not grow dim. When we look into the face of Jesus, we see that he's staring at this earth. He's looking at this valley. He's looking at our neighborhoods. It clarifies the things of this earth. It focuses us on this earth. When we look at Jesus, we don't just stand around in some kumbaya, forever ecstatic spiritual moment. No, suddenly we find ourselves, just like at the end of our worship services, pushed away, pushed out. Not away from him, but out into the world. Why? Because the creator loves the world. This is my father's world. That's the whole point of the gospel, is that God hasn't let go of the world. He holds it in his embrace, and the gospel pushes us. And so we've got to do this over and over and over. We've got to let the Spirit of God move us out into our neighborhoods, into our surrounding cities, to teach and explain and embody the kingdom of God. To plant churches that embrace God's kingdom, filled with agents of his kingdom. This valley needs churches that believe the whole gospel. That read the whole Bible. That know that Jesus loves all of life. That know that the gospel is about the redemption of every square inch. And this is tough. Over and over and over, as we focus our love and adoration on Jesus, we will see him facing the world. The creator cares for his creation. And the more we love and adore him, the more we will be shaped into his image. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And took the form of a humble servant. And that's what happens to people who worship him. They become strangely willing to give up things for the sake of the world. For the life of the world. His spirit is going to lead us to take enormous risk for the sake of our city. For the life 
of our region and our world. God is for our world. And how is God healing the world? A lot of people, they read the Gospels and they say, I love Jesus, and then I turn to Acts, and it's kind of a disappointment that suddenly Christianity shifts from Jesus to the church. It's not a shift. It's a continuation. What if we learned since November? Since November, we've been going through Luke's two-volume account of the origins of Christianity. Volume 1, the life of Jesus. Volume 2, overlapping with it, the life of Jesus flows into the life of the church. And the way that Jesus continues to work in this world is through churches in neighborhoods taking those places seriously. Our church, we've been doing this since the beginning. This week, as I've read over Acts chapter 13 over and over and over, my heart has been filled with gratitude for the church of the incarnation. I've remembered your faith, your remarkable sacrifices, your bold and courageous risk-taking abilities. I don't know if some of you know this, but in October of 2010, Our church got started, um, and the way it got started was 12 people with $15,000 saved up in the bank offered to Aubrey and Janelle with five children a salary many times bigger than that to move here, to to plant their lives here. It was a huge risk-taking move. I mean, Aaron would say every me, yeah, we promise you the salary, but (laughs) you know what budgets are, don't you? It was 15 people who who were willing to take, 12, 12 adults who were willing to take this enormous risk. And then, uh, uh, not long into it, we'd outgrown our living room, we'd outgrown this other little room we're, we were in, and we sensed the Spirit of God leading us to buy this building. We didn't have the money. We were still being supported by our own denomination, but we sensed God was in it. And about 80 people, over half of which were children. Of the remaining less than 40, less, about half of them had jobs. So we're talking about 25 jobs, 20 jobs. We said God was leading us, and we, bought, we signed a mortgage on this building. And then we convent, commenced a renovation of this building, and again, it was an enormous financial risk. But God did amazing things. And we paid off the renovation early. And then not long ago, we went into another renovation phase, which was also a big financial risk that we still don't entirely know how it's going to work out. There's still about $130,000 of it that we're, we're on the hook for God to help us with. From the beginning, our church has been willing to take risks together of the financial sort, of the relational sort. And all of these moves, they have been to walk out on a limb with disaster on one side, like the church fold up and doesn't exist on one side. And on the other side, God could fix it. God could save us. Our city's worth it. Our neighbors are worth it. 
Our region is worth it. God advances his kingdom through the risk-taking, sacrificing, bold, compassionate work of churches that hold each other close but release each other. Notice Paul and Barnabas, they don't stay on Cyprus. Can you imagine the people in Cyprus? Stay, stay, stay. They keep going. Look at verse 13. They set sail, and this time Paul says, it's time to go to my hometown. And they had to Paul's part of the world, which is modern-day Turkey. And just like they did in, in Cyprus, they go into the synagogues. And, and remember, Paul and Barnabas are Jews. And look at verse 15. They're sitting in a synagogue after the reading from the Law and the Prophets. The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now, this was the habit. This was the custom because Jews had a deep sense of identity. And so when a Jew from another town came to town, they felt immediate fellowship with them. And their habit in their synagogues was to invite guests to, to speak because they, th- this was their family. And Paul was ready. He obliged. We heard what he said. Mike read it a little earlier. Did you notice what Paul does? He stands up and like an int, he has a long, slow wind-up. He tells a story. Did you notice his story that it's the story of the Jewish people? He tells it in a way that he shows how the history of Israel itself points to Jesus. Now, I don't have time this morning to show you that. Um, it's, it's actually quite hard to see if you don't know a lot about the Bible. If you don't know the Bible really well, reading his sermon feels like you're just listening to calculus and you're an English major, you know? Um, not that I would know. Let me just bottom line a couple of things. What he's doing is he's using the Jewish form of storytelling to make signposts to Jesus, and they would have all gotten it. This would have felt very easy to access to them. Look at verse 23. From this man's offspring, in accordance with this promise, God has produced a Savior for Israel, Jesus. And then starting in verse 26, he begins to say one of the most difficult things he ever has to say. It's one one of the deep mysteries in the universe. It's this. God's rescue of this world, this cosmos, was through Israel. Through Israel's Messiah. And yet the leaders of Israel didn't get it. They didn't understand the scriptures that were read to them week after week after week. And even though they didn't understand those scriptures, they fulfilled the scriptures by rejecting Jesus. That somehow their misunderstanding and their rejection, somehow the mystery is that that was all part of the plan. And that is something that God used... To fix the world. Now, now this takes us deep down to the mystery of God's call of Israel in the first place. That Israel, the bearer of God's rescue for the world, will reject God's rescue plan. And in rejecting it, that is somehow a part of the way that God rescues the world. Now look at verse 29. 
And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. Talking about Jesus, they crucified him. That somehow the rejection of, of Jesus in crucifying, that somehow that's a fulfillment. They laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And from this point on in Paul's sermon, it's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he tells the story of Israel so that they can see how the whole story, surprising everybody, has been leading to this moment. And then this moment becomes the climactic moment of everything God is doing in and for the life of the world. That somehow Jesus' resurrection from his death after his crucifixion, that somehow that resurrection kicked open the door of death, not just for Jesus, but for everybody and every problem and every sickness and every pain and every vestige of evil. Notice verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through him, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. In other words, the new world which God is creating is for everyone and everything. Every brokenness in your life, every pain, every suffering, every death, every injustice, every ugliness, every untruth, everything. The new world which God is creating, he is doing that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus at every level. And it starts at the level of sin. The gospel, it's irreducibly about sin. Your sin and mine. Our wicked sins and our foolish sins. Our failings by accidents and our failings by intention. Our rebellions. Not only our personal sins, but even sophisticated, flashy, corporate, international, global sins. Personal, individual, corporate, the whole lot of it. All of them, through Jesus, the creator is rescuing the creation. So just think about this for a minute. This room is filled with people who have been able to deal on your own with a lot of sin. Lots of us in this room have overcome enormous brokennesses, habits, family traits. This room is filled with people, many people, who without Christ, you've done enormous work to get into a better place than you were born into. But if you're honest, I bet that there's still a lot of muddy waters in your life. 
the most self-made person among us. I'm sure there are still enormous swaths of your life that you've tried your hardest to overcome, and you haven't. I mean, don't raise your hands, and children, don't make your parents raise their hands, but how many of you, I will not act like my father, I will not act like my mother. How many of you who have overcome enormous sin find yourself confessing the same sin week after week after week. We are filled with things we can't do. Jesus came for all of it. All that stuff that you can't fix, all that sin that is happening to you and all that sin that you are committing, he came to forgive it. The good news is that the God who made you offers a way to heal every sin, every challenge, every obstacle. Everything can be sorted out. All of it can. Nothing needs to stand in the way of your relationship with your creator and with yourself and with others and with this creation. You can be justified. You can be declared right and forgiven and a full and free member of the kingdom of God, of God's people, the gospel. It is the joyous good news that the events of the life of Jesus made this possible. Now, how do you do that? How do you find forgiveness? Because even those sins that you've overcome, how do they get dealt with on a far deeper level? The way the Creator, and maybe if you were the Creator, you would have figured out a different way. But the way the Creator fix this was by taking on flesh living, dying rising from the dead and if you would believe that story if you would believe it and if you not only would believe it but you would put your faith in Jesus you would trust him to bring his power into your life to bring his love into your life to bring his goodness into your life if you would trust him in that way If you would trust him to forgive you, then he will. He will. You have to repent. You have to turn back. And and what I mean is, look, to do that, you have to turn back from everything that's holding you back from doing that. That's what repentance is. It's to turn away from everything that's hindering you from doing that. Turn away from everything that's hindering you from embracing Christ in faith. Turn away from thinking that just because you've overcome a lot of sin in your life, turn away from thinking that that's enough, that that's good enough, that that somehow wipes it out. Okay, so let's just play that one out. Suppose my father abused me. And suppose all of that abuse comes into my life and then I abuse others. But then one day... Through lots of enormous hard work, I stopped being an abuser. How am I going to deal with the abuse I did? You see, we've got to draw. We, we not only need to overcome sin, we need to be forgiven of it. 
And you know what else? We need to develop the ability to forgive others who've sinned against us. And the way this happens is that you turn away from everything that's keeping you from believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus. That's called repentance. What do you need to repent of? That's a tough question. I mean, you saw it played out in the story Mike read to us from Acts 13. I mean, one moment you go, you go to bed thinking, oh, yeah, this is great. I want this. I want forgiveness. But you wake up the next day and you're like, wait a minute, this is kind of insulting. That's why Paul moves on in verse 40 to give a warning. Watch out, he says. You can miss out on this forgiveness. You can miss out on God's kingdom, on the new life God is creating. You can miss out on the healing of the world. God is healing the world, and the healing is open to everybody, not based on nationality or based on your IQ, but only if you believe this story and trust this story and trust the center of this story, Jesus Christ. No wonder verse 42 says that the people in the synagogue followed them out of the synagogue, begging them, tell us more, tell us more, tell us more. Explain this to us. This is hard to understand. How can a death break death? How can resurrection solve? We don't, we don't fully get this. Teach us more. And no wonder Paul and Barnabas urged them It says to continue in God's grace because the whole sermon was about grace. The great story of God's amazing mercy to the world, to the human race, to you and me. So they come back together the next Sabbath. They meet again in the synagogue, but this time the crowd is overflowing. Because they all went home to their friends and family, and there's something about the gospel. There's something about the good news that I've been telling you, that good news. Now, there's lots of good news, but there's something about this particular good news that when we say it, when we name it, when we explain it, when we talk about it, God himself works. It's more than just a beautiful idea. It is a story that continues to be used by the Creator to bring people to Himself. So the the synagogue is full. And a group there, they don't like it. And so the chapter ends with three groups of people. You've got some angry folks. He's an angry elf. Have y'all not seen that elf? Ooh. (laughs) There's a bunch of angry people. They don't like this story, so they reject it. And then you've got a group of very happy people, people who heard the story, believed it, put their faith in Jesus, and as a result, they discovered an incredible power at work in their lives. The whole scriptures say that God rescues us by starting with sin, by forgiving us. of our. That's, that's the, the starting point of his work in our life, is his forgiveness of our sin. And it's an amazing thing because a lot of neurobiology is now beginning to locate shame as a deep factor, even a central factor in the human life. But Christianity has been saying for ages, our deepest need is for a work at that level. And that's where God starts with forgiveness. And through this forgiveness, 
These happy people discovered a fresh act of grace has traded their broken, murky, hard hearts and replaced their hearts with living hearts. And once you have that, once you experience a new heart, it's not like all of your problems immediately go away. No, there's still a whole lot more work that God has to do. But God promises us that if you enter into his kingdom, he will take you, the whole you, starting with your sin. He will take all of you, starting with your deepest internal self, and he will work out from there, and he will make you, through his son, new. And so God offers this great and wonderful work of grace still today, every time the story is told. This morning, he's offering it. All of you hearing this story, he's offering you the work of grace. And so many of us know That when we accept this, when we believe this story, and when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, all sorts of tensions begin to break out in our lives. (laughs) We know that we've been rescued, but we know we're still a mess. God's done a great saving work, but we know there's so much work left to do in us, and that the deepest places in our lives we can't touch by ourselves. And so we trust him. And we enter into the long, slow, very slow work of him working this salvation out into every place of our life. Three groups of people. You've also got Paul and Barnabas. Do you see him at the end of the story? Escaping persecution, scurrying to hiding? No, to the next town where Mike will show us next week. Same cycle again. Once again, the kingdom of God is new creation moving forward through opposition, through suffering, through churches that have risk-taking faith. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Do you believe the message of God's great and gracious rescue of the world through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Children, do you believe this? Adults, do you believe this story? Have you put your faith in Jesus? If you haven't, I invite you to. Now, maybe, maybe you haven't, and maybe you're like the folks in the synagogue after the first week where you want to, but you've got questions. You don't know what it means. If that's you, come and talk to me. I would love to talk to you. Talk to Indy. He would love to talk to you. Zeke would love to talk to you. So many people in this room would love to talk to you. Oh, just please, just ask. That's all you've got to do. My email address is on the back of the worship guide. You can email me my phone number. If you want CJ's phone number, I'll give it to you. You can call him. Let's pray.